Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. On today's California Report magazine, how transplants from Oklahoma and the South reshaped the Golden State. From the music that became the Bakersfield sound. Bakersfield was the hot spot. It was the center of the country music universe. To the African-American farm workers who thought they'd escaped Jim Crow racism, only to find a different kind of racism here. The difference in California and the South is simply that. It's hidden. Plus, a granddaughter's letter to her grandparents, Dust Bowl migrants who hop trains looking for the California dream. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Today, when you think of farm workers in California's fields picking strawberries, pruning grapevines, cutting lettuce, you probably think of migrants from Mexico or Central America. I just blowed in and I got them Dust Bowl blues. But less than a century ago, many of those jobs were done by Dust Bowl migrants from places like Oklahoma, entire families of refugees escaping a severe drought and the Great Depression. Something Woody Guthrie memorialized in his song, Dust Bowl Blues. But when the dust gets high, you can't even see the sky. The 1930s brought over a million newly displaced people to California, especially the Central Valley. It's a story John Steinbeck made famous with The Grapes of Wrath. The film version came out in 1940. Everybody's got to get off. Everybody's leaving, going out to California. Your folks, my folks, everybody's folks. It traces the journey of a family of Okies, a term which described their Oklahoma roots, but also meant dirty, poor, unwanted. We don't want no more Okies in this town. There ain't enough work here for them that's already here. Many people have now reclaimed the term Okie as a badge of honor, a symbol of their attitude of survival and the legacy they brought to California. Not all of them were white families, like in the Grapes of Wrath. In the 1940s and 50s, a wave of African-American families came to the Central Valley, too, lured by the promise of jobs and an escape from racist Jim Crow laws. The California Report's Alex Hall brings us the story of two families whose dreams of getting ahead were shaped by the racism they found here in California. 
There was a time when many people living in California's Central Valley could trace their roots directly to the American South. This is Maryland. How are you? Hi, Marilyn. Oh my God, all you guys are so good. <laughs> <laughs> the Marshall family came from Mississippi. This is Brother Joe. Uh-huh. Brother Joe. Uh-huh. Hi, how are you? Are you a hugger too? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We got nothing but love for you. Yeah. Yeah. Outside, a big storm is rolling in. Drops of water collect in pools around potted plants. A wind chime hangs just within earshot on the front porch. Joe, Lee, Marilyn, and Zella are four of 13 siblings, now all in their 60s and 70s. In a room next to the living room, a thin man lies in the fetal position on a bed. David Marshall has cancer. His brother, Lee Marshall, prays over his body as a TV set plays Family Feud. The walls surrounding the bed are covered in hundreds of framed family photos. There's a painted portrait of their mother. In fact, all of the rooms, including the living room and hallways, are a visual testament to the family's history. This is our cousin. This is Joe and his first wife right there. These are my grandkids here. Zella Marshall is the oldest sister. This is just some of the pictures. We still got a lot of them in boxes and stuff because we have no room to put them. You know, no room to put them. Zella and her sister Marilyn live here in South Dos Palos, a small farming community about 100 miles southeast of San Jose. Two of their brothers are here visiting today. My name is Joe Marshall and uh, I was born in 1947. I bought my first home in Los Banos at 20 years old, and uh, I've been in Los Banos ever since. My name is Lee Marshall. I was born over in Merced, and we was raised on this piece of property. I was born in 1949. So as long as I've been living, this is where we come up at right here. Mm -hmm. Joe and Lee's father moved to the Central Valley to work for the railroad and in doing so, put distance between his family and the racist laws of the South. You know, we could go anywhere and eat. It wasn't a place where you had to go to the back door. It was nothing like, like being in the South. People in the South, they let you know right off the top, you not welcome, you not wanted, and hey, don't get out of place, <laughs> you say mister to me. And they demand that you say yes sir and all this kind of stuff to them. It was just straight out, they, don't, they didn't hide it. That was better for me, because I know where you stand. Even though we think of Jim Crow as being something Southern, the brothers say they found California had its own racism. It's a hidden thing that they use on you. The state allowed legal barriers that restricted where black families could live. Redlining prevented them from getting loans to buy houses, and there were sundown towns, places that people of color could visit during the day but had to leave by the time it got dark. In the 40s and 50s, Joe and Lee say South Dos Palos was thriving, but that racism shaped how the Marshalls lived and worked, and it shaped the destiny of their town. Everything in South Dos Palos, except for a few places like behind us, was owned by black, black people. people. There was a cafe on this corner. There was another one across the street over here. And then there was a service station. For decades, cotton was one of California's top producing crops, just like in the South. To earn money, Joe and Lee worked in the fields. 
I mean anything from chopping beets with a short handle hoe, uh, chopping cotton, picking grapes, cutting grapes, what they call it, uh, knocking almonds out of a tree with the big rubber mallet, lettuce seeds, uh, uh, peaches, uh, apricots, 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 watermelons, watermelons. I mean, we've done everything that is out there to be done. Growing up, Joe and Lee didn't have running water or indoor bathrooms in the house they lived in. That created awkward moments with their classmates. It was kind of embarrassing to bring your girlfriend over. Hey, where's the restroom at? You better go outside. And I, was, I mean, that was hard. Yeah. And I'll never forget, as long as I live, when the city put in the sewer line. And they say, but it's up to each house to dig, to hook up to it. Man, we were out there digging with a smile on. We were thinking, man, we gonna get indoor bathroom. That was, oh, that was the happiest day of my life. But if you go down that way, further down, they had all of this and we didn't have it. Just a few miles away from South Dos Palos was another community called Dos Palos. South Dos Palos without the South. There were a lot more white people in Dos Palos, and the homes there had indoor plumbing and running water. We didn't see this hidden, I mean hidden prejudice yeah, yeah. until we went downtown to school. It, it, it was prejudice. Dos Palos is what Lee is talking about when he says downtown, in the place the brothers went to look for a job later on when they wanted one in town. You out there waiting for a job interview, and behind closed doors, they just cutting you down. You're not wanted. I would take that more so than ever, this hidden uh, prejudice, which still which still goes on today in these little towns like this. It's a hidden thing that just can just, just tear you down. There were a lot of towns in the Central Valley like Dos Palos and South Dos Palos, a black community and an all-white community just a few miles apart existing side-by-side, separate but interdependent. When Latino farm workers began staying in the valley in greater numbers, instead of going back and forth to Mexico, they began changing this black-white dynamic. We're going to meet another family now, the Beavers, who saw this happen in their unincorporated town of Teveston, about 100 miles south of South Dos Palos on Highway 99. Around 60 years ago, Teveston was filled with black families living and working just outside a mostly white town called Pixley. Inside Friendship Baptist Church, the Reverend gives a sermon about letting go of hurt and there is plenty of hurt to go around in Teveston. Do you want to be healed? Bertha May Beavers, the matriarch of the Beavers family, sits in the crowd hanging on the reverend's every word. I thought they was, uh, you just come out here and you could pick money off trees the way they told it. But shoot, I should have stayed in Oklahoma. I did the same thing, chop cotton, pick cotton. I did it all, you know. And uh, and it was rough out here, just like it was back in Oklahoma. You had to work hard for your money. 
In 1946, Bertha May Beavers migrated here from Oklahoma at the age of 15. Soon after she arrived, a white woman was beat up on the railroad tracks nearby. Because of this, for a while, no black people were allowed in Pixley, she says. The rumor was that a black man from Teveston had beat the woman. We would go to work and, and we'd get off early and come home and the men's would get their guns and set up all night. And then it, it finally, they finally found out who beat the white lady up. Turns out it was the white woman's husband. He beat her up and they tried to say the black man down here in Tiffson beat her. Bertha May was afraid, but she stayed. She eventually married her husband here. They had 12 children. The family lived on the outskirts of Pixley and worked in the fields to get by. Here are Bertha May's daughters, Annie, Ruth, and May Beavers. Just in the house we lived in, we didn't have a two-bedroom, so mm -hmm. with us, all of us 12 kids, we all slept in one bedroom. It was just old and raggedy. <laughs> and, we could, and we could lay in the bed at night, look out. And see the stars. Uh -huh. Cracks and everything. Like South Dos Palos, homes in Teveston didn't have running water, gas, or indoor plumbing. That would eventually change, along with a lot of other things. The 60s transformed California. In 1963, a state law was passed to end discrimination by property owners who refused to sell or rent to African Americans. Congress passes the most sweeping civil rights bill ever to be written into the law. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed. And thus reaffirms the conception of equality for all men that began with Lincoln and the Civil War 100 years ago. The Negro won his freedom then. He wins his dignity now. The Beavers observed all of this at a distance until change came to them. Cesar Chavez and a growing movement of farm workers organizing for better pay and working conditions was gaining momentum in the Central Valley. While some black workers were involved, the movement was largely Chicano and Filipino. Ruth Beaver's husband, C.L. Jones, remembers witnessing the change. So where it really started at was in the grapes. They wanted to, you know, change things, and they did you know, made things a lot better for some. Eventually, residents fought to get a community well in Teveston, but some families distanced themselves from the upgrades, like gas in their homes. Again, Annie Beavers. They're scared the white people might come and take their property or take their house, uh, so they didn't really want no right. gas. No. And they knew this is what you grew up with, fear. If you go to Teveston now, you'll see homes scattered throughout the town, although it's not much of a town. You don't see businesses, just a boarded-up gas station and two churches. Around the 70s and 80s, Bertha May's children were able to get out of farm labor and find new jobs. A few worked at nearby schools as lunch ladies and at the post office. Today, Latino families populate most of the houses. There are Latinos in leadership positions in the community. We, as black people, I don't think fought we as did. hard as we no, should we have didn't. for what we wanted. You know, they, you know, when you come from a... Oklahoma, you didn't really have nothing. So now you got a little something, you scared the, and they was raised that the white man takes everything. So they get out here and they just still scared of the white man. Just tell the truth about it. They were scared. Right, here you go. The ahead. white people. The Beavers saw something in the Latino families moving into the area. Something that was new and completely unfamiliar. 
It was a certain boldness, a lack of fear that black families coming from the South felt they couldn't afford to have. I'll tell you what we used to say when we was growing up. The white people were watching the wrong people. They was keeping us down and Hispanics were steady getting ahead. Steady getting ahead. Teveston wasn't the only place where life was changing for black families in the Central Valley. Over in South Dos Palos, the Marshalls, the family we met earlier, also noticed a shift in the landscape. Like I said, there was no jobs that the young blacks wanted to do. So when they got old enough, graduated high school, they started leaving here. The Mexicans were still working in the fields. And they got to And all of a sudden, you started looking up. Mexican that brought this land, build a nice house, better than some of the houses that's been here. Mm -hmm. It was just an opportunity for them. Mm -hmm. Our misfortune and their, you know, their fortune to come in and be able to buy something and build. But it was okay with Joe Marshall because his kids were getting out and getting ahead. You don't see any blacks out there now. You don't see any whites out there now. It's all Latinos because that's all they had to offer them, you know. And you want to cry that they're coming over here doing our, our jobs? No. They didn't take a job from me. I gave it to them. Nowadays, the Marshall's house in South Dos Palos stands exposed on a desolate corner. It looks out onto an empty field. And I saw this town kind of drying up to where when you come over, you could stop on every corner and holler at somebody and talk for a few minutes. I can come over here now, I might not see nobody and I can ride all around town, not see anybody. Now it's a ghost town. And to this day, there's still no jobs here. No so job. you can't expect this town to grow. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord Jesus, just thanking you, Lord, one more time. It's the end of the day. The Marshall siblings stand in a circle holding hands and say a prayer. Even though their town has been disappearing for generations now, this land is still a gathering place for their family. Joe looks at his Latino neighbors and can relate to what they're going through. He knows nobody works in the fields if they don't have to. And the road out of this town is a long one. For the California Report, I'm Alex Hall. We ask you, O Lord, as we uh, fellowship here today, O Lord, we ask you, Lord, that all that was said and all that has been A special thanks to photographer Ernest Lowe. His photos of African-American farm workers in the San Joaquin Valley taken in the 1960s are what inspired this story. Those photos are now on display at UC Merced. We've got a link to pictures of the Marshall family, the Beavers, and other families at californiareport.org. You're listening to the California Report magazine. On this week's show, we're talking all about the migration of people from Oklahoma and the South to California's Central Valley and the ways those migrants reshaped the Golden State. We just heard about African-American families like the Marshalls and the Beavers, who came here in the 40s and 50s. Before them, a wave of mostly white migrants fleeing the Dust Bowl came looking for work in the San Joaquin Valley, too, like listener Kimberly Brown's grandparents. She wrote to them as part of our series, Letter to My California Dreamer, where we've been asking you to write a letter to one of the first people in your family who came to California with a dream. Dear Grandparents, your story started in 1936, 
shortly after being married in rural Oklahoma. Grandpa, you were 22, and Grandma, you were 18. Between the two of you, no one had a dime. Just a hope and a dream that there was something and somewhere better than the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma. You told me you'd paid a smuggler to get you tuned to California. You were both Americans, but in 1936, the Los Angeles Police Department briefly established a bum blockade to ban Dust Bowl migrants from entering the state. You had your eyes set on Oakdale in the San Joaquin Valley, where you had family and the promise of work. Without a car, horse, or wagon, only the clothes on your back, you jumped trains out of Oklahoma. You said it was a good way to travel then, that people looked out for each other. You sometimes would walk back roads looking for work in exchange for a meal. Grandma, you told me of the sweet woman that took pity on you because you were so thin. She put Grandpa to work and fed you in the kitchen. You ate as much as you could. You laughed at that memory. When you arrived in Oakdale, California, your sister and brother-in-law gave you a home. You said you were lucky to have family there because many ended up in migrant camps with no running water or sanitation. They called you Okies, a derogatory name, meaning dirty, criminal, and stupid. You were none of these, just two young people looking for work. That's why I sympathize for those who make the difficult journey from south of the border. Grandma, you ended up working in the canneries feeding America. Grandpa, you would go on to build some of the great highways of Northern California, including Highway 17. For the next decade, you followed work all over the country. Grandpa, you even worked on the Panama Canal. Finally, the two of you made Oakdale your permanent home for you and your five children. The California dream delivered you from poverty to middle class. For me, the California dream is pride in my state. It's a state of many cultures, diverse landscapes, bountiful farmland, and world-changing industries. I'm proud to be a Californian and your granddaughter. Love, Kimberly. Listener Kimberly Brown's letter to her grandparents. We'd love to hear your letter to your family's California dreamer. Maybe it was a grandparent, a parent, or maybe even you were the first in your family to come to California with a dream. We've got an easy form on our website where you can share your story with us. Check it out, californiareport.org. Well, I hope you come to see me in the movie. And I know that you will plainly see. Biggest fool that's ever hit the big time And all I gotta do is act naturally That's Buck Owens with his 1963 hit, Act Naturally. He was one of the kings of the Bakersfield sound, pioneered by musicians with roots in Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Texas. It's music Robert Price has spent much of his career writing about. He's a longtime columnist and the former executive editor at the Bakersfield Californian. He's also the author of The Bakersfield Sound, How a Generation of Displaced Okies Revolutionized American Music. Hey there, Robert. 
Hi, Sasha. So what is it that defines the Bakersfield sound? What what makes that Bakersfield twang happen? To me, the Bakersfield sound is not so much a sound as it's a time and a place. Just a unique period of time between about 1949 and 1970 when Bakersfield was, was the hot spot. It was the center of the country music universe. The sound itself, you know, you've got the two main practitioners are Buck Owens and Merle Haggard, and their sounds are not really very much alike. Buck kind of has a rockabilly thing going on with a little bit of maybe Norteño thrown in there. Merle Haggard had more of a uh, Western swing and a jazz sensibility. The one thing they all had in common, besides the locale, was the, the instrument of choice, the Fender Telecaster. Cut through the bass line, cut through the drums, and reverberated off the you know, aluminum siding in the room you're in. It was just, it was a game changer. And the songs were very much about working people. I mean, about the hard scrabble life. When you talk about Merle Haggard in your book, you call him a prodigy, a potato packer, ditch digger, cotton picker, convict, patriot, and iconoclast. And he does sing a lot about folks who who are working people, like in Working Man Blues. Sometimes I think about leaving, do a little bumming around. I want to throw my bills out the window, catch a train to another town. I'm go back working. Gotta buy my kids a brand new pair of shoes I drink a little beer in a tavern Cry a little bit of these working man blues Here comes that working man Very much so. He was a blue-collar guy. His dad worked for the railroad and he himself had a lot of uh, you know manual labor type jobs. His audiences were people that worked in the fields picking cotton and picking fruit. Merle Haggard grew up in Oildale, so named because it's adjacent to the Kern River oil field, which is one of the biggest oil fields in the lower 48 states. Between oil and agriculture, these were uh, working class people. How did those migrants from Oklahoma and from the South change the culture of California and the Central Valley? And, and how do we hear that reflected in the music? Well, the, the Okies that came west in the mid-30s through the early 50s brought with them, you know, not just music, but they brought a distinct way of talking. They brought sort of a religious sensibility that hadn't been on the West Coast before. It was more of a praise the Lord out loud kind of religion. They brought some conservative politics with them. It completely changed certainly Central California. We don't let our hair grow long and shaggy like the hippies out in San Francisco do. And I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee, a place where even squares can have Okie from Muskogee by Merle Haggard. That's a great example of a song that kind of differentiates the Okie sensibility uh, from the established California way of way of thinking you know the references to the long hair in San Francisco you know we're not like those people that very much spoke to the conservative nature of the way Okies were early on let's talk about Buck Owens he kind of had his own rags to rhinestone story and he rebelled a little bit when it came to the Nashville definition of country music I've got a tiger by the tail it's plain to see I won't be much when you get through with me Well, I'm a losing weight and a turning mighty pale Looks like I've got a tiger by the tail 
You know, Buck Owens early on told himself, I am never going to be poor. And he lived his life trying to be as unlike his childhood as he possibly could be in terms of his circumstances, his financial circumstances. Country music, out of Nashville anyway, became a lot more sort of orchestrated. And in Bakersfield, you know, led by people like Buck Owens, uh, there was sort of this rebellion. You know, rockabilly uh, became more of an influence. Uh, rock and roll actually became an influence. Buck Owens kept that type of music going in his, in his records when he first signed with Capitol Records in 1959. Uh, as it turned out, the American listening public really liked his sound. And that's kind of how Bakersfield stole the momentum away from Nashville and, and kind of became the center of the country music universe for a, a you know, half a generation or so. All right, Robert, thanks so much for talking with us. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Robert Price is a columnist for the Bakersfield Californian and the author of The Bakersfield Sound, How a Generation of Displaced Okies Revolutionized American Music. And that's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, and we had additional engineering this week from Katie McMurrin. Our director is Susie Racho. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor. Asala Sanapur is our intern. The California Report's editorial team also includes Nina Thorson, Julia McAvoy, David Marks, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, honoring the recipients of the 2019 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards. Learn more at irvine.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.